So you're probably wondering about the title, aren't you? Remember that question? It came at the very beginning of chapter one. We, that is, you, me, John, Tommy, Joanne, and Patsy, have come a long way from back then, haven't we? In fact, we're about to start Act 2 of Frenchtown, which is why I thought this would be a good time to thank you for listening and to thank Frenchtown's production crew for their dedicated hard work. Looking ahead, you'll find that Act 2 will continue with the adventures of the Fab Four Plus One, but with some changes and a few notable surprises. As for the changes, well, our heroes are transitioning from childhood to adulthood now. And I don't need to tell you that living in an adult world is a whole lot more complicated. On top of that, a few new characters will play important parts going forward. John's status will change dramatically, and Joanne will continue as plus one for a whole new and very different Fab Four. And don't be surprised if I now and then rattle your comfort cage a little like I did with Chapter 3 of Act 1, the chapter about Patsy, George, and the Strand. Back in 1927, Warner Brothers released a movie called The Jazz Singer. It was the first talkie, that is, the first film where the movie audience both saw and heard screen characters speak. There's a scene in The Jazz Singer where its star, Al Jolson, playing a song in Dance Man, performs a show-stopping number which is greeted with thunderous applause from an on-screen theater audience. He steps downstage to that audience and holds up his arms to signal for their attention. He then says, wait a minute, folks, wait a minute. You ain't heard nothing yet. You ain't heard nothing yet. Frenchtown, Act Two. always needed help getting off the stage. His concerts encores always climaxed with intensely bright lights and indoor pyro, leaving him light blind when it came to negotiating a path into the wings. He depended on Leo, his personal assistant, in times of vulnerability like these. The once hundreds, now thousands in the house would be roaring for still more. But Johnny's manager, Ben, was a stern practitioner of the always leave them wanting more school where his biggest clients were concerned. And Johnny Domino was about as big as they came. He fumbled a bit on the short set of offstage stairs, but Leo studied him, got him onto firm ground, and led him over to the oxygen tank where he alternated between deep drags of O2 and deep gulps of OJ. With pulp, as stipulated in his contract. During this pause, Leo stripped off Johnny's heavy sequined jacket and sweat-soaked shirt and passed them to Marcy, Johnny's wardrobe attendant. All the while, the rest of the band, along with some of the techies, were making their way to the green room to feast on the buffet, have a few or more beers, and generally decompress before boarding the band limos or techie bus for the short run back to the hotel. Camp followers were everywhere. Hookups were expected. Johnny's regimen was quite different. When he'd had enough gas and liquid to at least temporarily recover, Leo, 
and Johnny's two security men, Gus and Francis, helped him to run the groupie gauntlet to his private dressing room where Ben was waiting. Together they reviewed the show and talked about possible changes to the set list and song order. Ben always kept one set of notes for Johnny, one for the band, and one for tech, stage, sound, lighting, and effects. Johnny insisted they go over the notes that pertain to him right after a performance. The other notes could wait until tomorrow. Johnny sipped Drambui on the rocks. They finished about a half hour later. Ben called for Leo, who threw a black sheet over Johnny's head and shoulders so that he wouldn't be recognizable to fans still desperately hanging around in the hope that the marquee, which now read, Johnny Domino has left the building. Please get home safely. Thank you, and good night. Was just a diversion, which, of course, it was. Leo, Gus, and Francis hustled Johnny out a side door and into a running limo with blacked-out windows. In the short distance between arena door and car door, Johnny, still hooded with the black sheet, looked to all the world very much like Sister Kerosina. I've spent much of my life in and around the performing arts. Much of that time was spent teaching young people about the difference between acting and pretending. Some got it. Some didn't. Inevitably, some of those who did get it would ask me if I thought that they had the talent to make it in the biz. Because I didn't want my legacy to be a trail of broken dreams, my answer was that a person could succeed in the performing arts if three or four conditions were met. Good training, perseverance, luck, and talent. I believe then, and I still believe now, that this is true. However, I was always careful to make a distinction between success and stardom. Being successful in show business means making a living, not becoming a star. So what is talent anyway? Are you born with it? Does it evolve? Can it be taught? Can it be learned? How do you recognize it? Can it be lost? If yes, can it be regained? The answer to all these questions is, I don't know. And I really mean that, I don't know. It's one of those elusive, hard to define or describe, you either have it or you don't kinds of things. Forty years ago, the husband of a woman who was then choreographing a show for me said, talent will out. Now that's true. In fact, it's about the only certainty I can commit to where talent is concerned. Talent will out. It always does. And it very much did when John found his persona with the shades. He started off shakily, scared to death to be performing in public, but he got better by taking on a new identity. And as his confidence grew, he got a lot better. The other shades, me, Joanne, Tommy, Patsy, and Spike, used to kid him about it, but we couldn't deny or not be impressed by the changes that were taking place. John underwent a virtual metamorphosis, and the butterfly that emerged from the chrysalis had talent to spare. Gradually, the persona overtook the shy, virtually parentless, insecure kleptomaniac, and the persona became Johnny. He had reinvented himself. Fortunately for the rest of us, the new John kept the size of his head in check. I credit his sister Ruth, and, and also Joanne. She and John were close but not in a romantic way. They were best buds, and she could drag his tether back down to earth and puncture his ego with one well-timed comment. She could deflate him better than anybody, and he both knew it and respected her for it. The Shades made a name for themselves quite quickly. 
Spike was great when it came to marketing the band. She insisted that all proceeds from their first few gigs go directly to promotion. She had t-shirts printed with the slogan, You got it made with the shades. The band handed them out at dances, and they soon started showing up in Fullerton hallways. Joyce, Joanne's mom, started hyping the band like crazy in anonymous letters to the T-Ville press. Stories and photos appeared in the Hartford Current and the Springfield Republican. Bumper stickers were next. A fan club soon followed. Their big break came that fall at the Big E, a.k.a. the Eastern States Exposition in Agawam, Massachusetts. The Big E was a New England tradition. Each state had its own building which showcased indigenous products and industries, such as maple syrup for Vermont and blueberry everything for Maine. There was a huge carnival adjacent, every fast food vendor known to man. Livestock displays and competitions, such as biggest cow, prettiest llama, and Best Behaved Pig. Along with petting zoos, trolley rides, craft displays. Who knew you could fashion Michelangelo's David out of clothespins and pipe cleaners? Craft shows and craft vendors, and a large arena for shows and concerts, which were always country and western themed. Such as Billy Bob's Rodeo and Bluegrass Blowout. And there was also a nightly Battle of the Bands, which featured three bands per night for three consecutive nights. Each night's winner became a finalist for the fourth night's finale. Spike convinced the others to send in a demo tape, and the Shades got the second slot on the first night. They won. Handily. They were well-rehearsed musically and choreographically. Patsy's influence. And Fullerton provided a school bus, promptly dubbed the Shades Wagon, for their fans. They attended the next two nights to scope out the competition, which sounded formidable. But the Shades were the total package. They may not have been the pick of the litter musically, but they had performance skills. They had presentation. They had charisma. They had a fan club. Fullerton provided three Shades wagons for the finals. And most importantly, they had Spike and Johnny Domino. The John persona. And that was all they needed to take the trophy. After the award ceremony, and once the hugs and backslaps subsided, the Shades began the anticlimactic but still important task of breaking down, packing up, and loading out. It was during this process that a young man wearing a WHCR Channel 3 t-shirt approached John and asked for a few minutes of his time. Ben Davidson, nay Ben Davidovich, started out as a DJ on WRCC, a small, low-powered, privately-owned radio station in Northampton, Massachusetts, called The Back of Beyond by residents in neighboring metropolises like Chicopee and Belchertown. He was on the morning shift for three years, playing what was then called MOR, which stood for Middle of the Road. In other words, musical pap too innocuous to be called rock, country and western, jazz, or anything else in the way of recognizable genre. Some radio stations attracted listeners by specializing in certain types of music. WRCC did the opposite. It offered the Hall of Fame of music mediocrity. But Ben was a natural salesman, and he paired that talent with a made-for-radio voice. He also sported good looks and a winning personality. 
Ben could also be quite persuasive. For example, he convinced WRCC's owner to invest in remote broadcast equipment and to buy a used oversized delivery van which he had emblazoned with the station's call letters, its frequency, and a larger-than-life portrait of Ben himself, under which was written, WRCC radio personality Ben Davidson, the voice of Western Mass. Ben then took his show on the road whenever he could. The WRCC van became a common sight at store openings, county fairs, church carnivals, religious festivals, bar mitzvahs, brises, local sporting events, etc. WRCC got a lot of publicity, and more importantly, so did Ben, who parlayed his growing popularity into a radio job on WHCR in Hartford, Connecticut, a much larger market. Ben used the same strategy there to make the HCR truck a frequent visitor to Connecticut versions of Massachusetts events like those he visited while still employed by WRCC. An additional bonus came with his new position. WHCR was an NBC television station as well as Radio 101. Dick Clark's American Bandstand was the most popular teen television program nationwide back then. Girls loved it. Boys called it Skanks on Parade. Ben convinced the powers at WHCR to launch Hartford Bandstand with himself as host. They did, he was, and the show aired twice a week at 4 p.m. Both it and Ben were instant hits. The station got Connecticut dairy partners to sponsor it. Moms loved that milk was advertised instead of sugary snacks. Ben drank glass after glass on screen. And would retreat behind the scenery during musical interludes to fart while local teens strutted their stuff to popular 45s. Once Ben became a TV personality, he began to lose interest in remote radio broadcasts. The HCR truck still made many appearances, as did Ben, in the form of his painted oversized image, now drinking a glass of milk, which still adorned the truck. But the announcer was now often one of Radio 101's lesser lights. Ben saved his radio self for the biggest events. The Big E qualified, and that's how Ben got to hear the shades for the first time. Ben had set his eyes on agentry, and he saw the shades, and John in particular, as a potential client. Ben introduced himself to John and wrote down John's telephone number, saying that he'd give him a call about possibly appearing on Hartford Bandstand. John recognized him because Ruth sometimes watched the show. She even floated the idea of appearing on the show to Demetrius, who said he'd rather castrate a pig. When John explained to Ben that Tommy was the Shades leader, Ben apologized about assuming that it was John and made some excuse about having to hurry back to the studio. It's okay, Ben said. I'll call you and you can tell them. And with that, he left. Needless to say, everyone was very excited. Appearing live on TV would really be the cherry on that day's Sunday. But it didn't quite work out that way. Ben called a couple of days later. He started off by flattering John for his singing and his stage presence. He also complimented the Shades, but it was pretty clear from the get-go that Ben mostly wanted to talk to John about Johnny, and in particular, about one song that Johnny had sung at the Big E. 
It was called It's Almost Tomorrow and was an original that Tommy had penned. The Shades had started mixing in a few original pieces, along with new pop covers and some rock classics. The Beatles, who wrote all but their earliest stuff, provided the inspiration for this in-house composition, and many bands were experimenting. Most original stuff was Drek, but It's Almost Tomorrow was good enough that fans had started requesting it. Ben said that he wanted the group to record it at The Galley, a professional recording studio in West Hartford. More importantly, Ben said that he'd foot the bill for one hour of recording time. Naturally, John agreed. And the following Sunday morning at 7 (laughs) a.m. Recording at off hours was a lot cheaper. A sleepy, hungover sound engineer immortalized It's Almost Tomorrow on tape. The sound guy gave a copy to John and said that he'd get the other copy to Ben. The Shades went back to Patsy's house because he had the best stereo system. And because Carmela made great waffles. And listened to the tape at least a dozen times. They were amazed at how professional they sounded even though the sound engineer had dismissed it as just a rough mix. The next week and a half was endless. John fielded calls from everybody except Spike almost daily. They all wanted to know if he'd heard from Ben, even though John had promised to get the word out as soon as he did. Ben finally called two and a half weeks after the recording session. He apologized for not calling back sooner, but explained that he'd had one of the audio techs at Channel 3 remix and make additional copies of It's Almost Tomorrow, and he'd sent them out to some record company executives he knew. He also said that he wanted to make a proposal to John and only John, and he invited John and his family to meet him at HCR House, Channel 3's Hartford headquarters. John explained that he'd be accompanied by his older sister Ruth and her fiancé Demetrius. Ben made it clear at the meeting's outset that he would be negotiating only for John, not for the Shades. They're a good group, he said, but just being good isn't good enough. There are hundreds of good groups out there right now trying to be the next Beach Boys or Beatles, and some of them are a lot more serious about the music business than the Shades. Ben noticed John shifting uncomfortably. Look, I'm not trying to bring them down, John, but you guys started as a kind of hobby, That's not the right word, but you know what I mean. What's going to happen when one of the Shades, or maybe more than one, goes off to college, or joins the army, or gets married and starts a family, or starts working full-time? John shrugged. Playing in a high school band is a lot of fun. You get to hang out with your friends. The attention you get is amazing. And if you make good music, that's a real bonus. But every band has an arc, John then made a rainbow shape in the air. You go up one side, you level off at the top for a while, and then you start the long slide back down to the bottom. The arc is inevitable. Ruth, who was a huge Beatles fan, asked, You think the Beatles are going to arc? Too soon to say, really. They will, unless they can find a way to keep reinventing themselves, or if they have outstanding think-outside-the-box talent management. And that's why I invited you to come in. I want to be that management for you. I want to be your agent. Demetrius finally broke the silence when Ben finished speaking. How exactly does that work? I mean, what does an agent do for somebody just starting out? My first job is to find more material for John to record. 
We want three or four tunes on a demo tape, and we pick those tunes to showcase John's range. It's Almost Tomorrow is a ballad, what we call a crooner. We'll also need a couple of rockers and something we call M.O.R. It means in the middle, not a rocker, but not a ballad either. Think Ricky Nelson's Traveling Man. Once we're satisfied that we've got a strong demo, we hawk it to record companies. I already set the stage for that step by sending out the demo you did at the galley. And? Ruth asked. We got some nibbles, but no bites yet. That's okay. We only want nibbles right now. Don't forget, they're only hearing John, not seeing him. Ruth asked, So how do they see him? They're not going to come to a high school dance. Connecticut bandstands, Demetrius said excitedly. Bingo, said Ben, right on the money. Ben sat back with a $10 grin on his face. John spoke for the first time. What do I tell the shades? The truth, Ben responded. I'm giving you an opportunity that doesn't come along every day. For most people, it never comes along. You'd be crazy not to take this chance. Besides, things don't usually happen all that quickly in this business. You'll continue with the shades as normal. If lightning doesn't strike, then it'll be like none of this ever happened. But I think you should still tell them, Ruth added. Yeah, me too, said John. Ben continued. That tune, It's Almost Tomorrow, Tommy wrote that? John nodded. I really like it. Has he written other songs? Yeah, John responded. He's written lots. Maybe I could come to a rehearsal and hear you perform a few, Ben asked it as a rhetorical question. Again, John nodded. John tuned out as the meeting progressed. He was more worried about how the rest would react to these developments than to the legalese about parental consent, commission percentages, copyright restrictions, union membership, venture capitalism, etc. Ruth, who had a sharp mind for business, handled most of these matters. When Demetrius excused himself to visit the men's room, John did the same. Once inside, John asked Demetrius if he thought he was doing the right thing. Demetrius responded like this. You gotta reach for the stars while you're young, Johnny. You got something the rest of us haven't got. You can sing. You got talent. You see people on TV all the time who don't sing any better than you, and they live in big fancy houses, and they drive around in new flashy cars. That could be you, Johnny. We don't know this Ben from nobody. He's just starting out, too. That means he's hungry. He'll work hard, and he sounds like he knows what he's talking about. So why not give it a shot? What have you got to lose? What if I have to drop out of school? John asked. So what? Demetrius said. Ruthie got her GED. You could, too. Maybe you'll even show up on graduation day in a red Rolls Royce with a sexy blonde in the passenger seat. How cool would that be, huh? Wouldn't you rather have the car and the blonde instead of a Fullerton diploma? John couldn't deny that Demetrius was right about that. But the convincer was the last thing Demetrius said. If you say no to this, you're going to wonder for the rest of your life if you should have said yes. When John and Demetrius rejoined the meeting, they observed that Ruth had taken copious notes on a legal pad. As John moved behind her to take his seat, 
he noticed that she had written Get Lawyer slash Joyce on the top of the page. It was underlined and followed by two exclamation points. The meeting started to wrap up soon after. Demetrius, however, raised one additional important question. Here's something I want to know. Why John? Okay, he can sing, but you must know a lot of people who can sing. It's part of your job. So why John? Ruth looked very impressed with Dimitri's speech. She took his hand and squeezed it. Ben answered this way. The music business, hell, all of show business, is about finding a hole that can be filled and then filling it. What does the public want? What are they not getting right now from existing talent? What's the hole right now, today, in the music business? We've got groups coming out of our ears. We've got the Brits. We've got the West Coast surf scene. We've got New York doo-wop like the Four Seasons. We've got the Detroit sound. Motown is going to be huge, trust me. But those are groups. What about male solo artists? Well, we've got those too. Frankie Avalon, Dion, Tommy Sands, Fabian, Del Shannon, Neil Sedaka, and on and on. You're forgetting Elvis. Ruth interjected. No, I'm not, Ben continued. Elvis is the king, but the king has gone corporate. Colonel Tom Parker had him making bad movie after bad movie. They're driving theater schlock. And so are his soundtrack albums. Elvis doesn't make records anymore. Elvis makes deals. John's a good-looking kid. He presents well, but John also has attitude. I saw that at the Big E. He can curl his upper lip just enough to turn a smile into a sneer and back again. There's a little bit of bad boy in John, and that's what I want to bring out. Attitude. It's all about attitude. Think of the lyrics to It's Almost Tomorrow. What's he singing about? His girlfriend dumped him, right? He knew it was coming, but he didn't want to admit it to himself. She just told him it was over. How does he feel? He's angry, right? He wants to get even somehow, but mostly, he's angry with himself. She made him her fool. So, outside of angry, what else does he feel? He feels hurt. She damaged his pride. She made him vulnerable. Ben leaned forward, closer to John. That's what I saw in you, John. I saw both anger and vulnerability. I saw the sensitive young guy who hides his soft side under a hard shell. Girls are suckers for guys like that. They're sexy. And sex sells. Sex always sells. That's the hole. That's what you're going to fill, John. And from now on, you're Johnny, not John. It gives you more of a little boy vibe. It contrasts more with your attitude. We want to emphasize the two sides of your personality. John keeps you simple. Johnny makes you complex. John told the Shades about his meeting with Ben at the next rehearsal. Naturally, they had a hundred questions. The big question for the rest of the Shades, however, was, what about us? And nobody wanted to be the first to ask that. Spike took charge of both the reaction and of the response. She said that they were all happy for him, that they hoped the career wheels would turn slowly so that he could play many more gigs with them, and that they'd be satisfied to split 50% of whatever he earned. That last remark broke the tension in the room. For his part, John said that it would probably all amount to nothing. 
But somehow, nobody believed that. Not even John. Thank you for listening to this episode of Frenchtown. Remember that new episodes drop on Mondays at midnight, so please continue to join us. Frenchtown was written and produced by Jim Gatto. The principal readers are Dana Schatz and Jeffrey Anbinder. The technical director is David Keith. Introductory and playout music was written and performed by Lisa Spike Norman. Whoever you are and I'm Coming Home Again were written by Jim Gatto. It's Almost Tomorrow was also written by Jim Gatto based on an idea from Lorraine Nelson. Additional musical recording was provided by Chrissy Gardner, Ryan Gardner, Gracie Price, and Megan Keith. The Frenchtown graphic design is courtesy of Carolyn Kamerska. Special thanks go to associate producer Kathy Keith and to Lorraine Nelson, Stephanie Levine, and Elaine Bissett. Frenchtown is a fictionalized memoir. Although some of the places mentioned existed at one time, they are either gone now or vastly different from what they were over 60 years ago. The characters are composites of friends and relatives I once knew, but they were not modeled on individuals who actually existed. Any resemblance to people or places is unintentional and coincidental. The entire contents of Frenchtown is copyrighted. For further information about Frenchtown and its contributors, please send inquiries to frenchtowninfo at gmail.com.
Take 